This episode was brought to you by State Farm. Buying a house in 2024 can be something extremely joyful, but also extremely stressful when you think about all the paperwork that you have to file. But like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's the phrase that will help you feel good knowing that you have people who care to help you file a claim or find the coverage for the things that you want to protect. After an accident, you may be worried. Who do I call? What do you do next? I drive peacefully knowing that I have people who have my back. In reality, finding good insurance doesn't have to be something that is complicated to you. State Farm has options to fit your unique needs, which means you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, or reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistant tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I'm a small business owner, and I believe that this is a great tool for other small business owners. In small businesses, you need to create a team, and if you're starting by yourself, Constant Contact can be the team that you need. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support, plus everything's backed by the 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Welcome to this special live edition of Global Goalscast. We, the Global Goalscast, the podcast that shows how we can change the world. In this episode, we're wrapping up the UNGA Week, the United Nations General Assembly Week. We're going to be talking about how to get the Sustainable Development Goals back on track. And the pandemic and economic plunge has been brutal. But the good news is we are starting to build back. Yes, that's the good news. Or maybe the less bad news, because things aren't as bad as they looked a year ago. A year ago, the key metrics of global progress were plunging down. And today, many at least are beginning to recover. And that is largely because of individuals, organizations and countries that really did step up. There's a lot of work still to do, but a lot of good work that is going on. The kind of work we will need more of to achieve the sustainable development goals or global goals. The kind of work that we highlight on the Global Goals Cast. So, where are we, Edie? I asked that question of Vishal Gujidar of the Gates Foundation. Let's hear what he had to say. I think what happened in the last year is that, unfortunately, due to the pandemic, a lot of the people that were in precarious situations ended up falling deeper into poverty. And that's really something that's disappointing and is really a setback to the SDGs and means that we have to redouble our efforts to make sure that we can get back on track. 
Let's break it down a little bit more precisely, Edie. Let's look at a few of the key SDG metrics. So poverty, those who are the most vulnerable have been hit the hardest and will likely be the slowest to recover. An additional 31 million people around the world have been pushed into extreme poverty as a result of COVID-19. For vaccination, some better news. Things are not as bad as they looked last year. Take vaccine coverage. In the middle of 2020, it was estimated that vaccine coverage would drop 14% globally, the equivalent of losing 25 years of progress. But as of the middle of this year, it looks like the actual drop, bad as it is, it's only half as bad. And on education, this worries me so much. Kids are coming back to school in person, but the damage has affected the poor far worse than the well-off, both poorer countries and poorer people in rich countries. For example, here in the United States, the learning loss for Black and Latino kids, third graders, was double the losses for white and Asian American students. Just one of the many disturbing things that I read in the Gates Goalkeepers report. This episode of Global Goalscast is brought to you by our listeners. That's right, listeners like you who care about the future. Please spread the word. Tell your friends about Global Goalscast. Hit the like and subscribe and give us five stars. Thanks also to CBS News Digital and Universal Production Music. So the world has a lot of work to do. Where do we go from here? So we have one of our favorite Global Goals cast guests, the inventor of moral money at the Financial Times, Jillian Tett. Welcome. Thank you. An inventor sounds a bit um, grandiose, but um, <laughs> co-founder is probably better. All right, co-founder. We like inventors. We love inventors. We invent things. Women, we do. It's all let's, about innovation like these days, isn't it? Yeah. It's all about innovation. So, Gillian, welcome. What's you been your take this UNGA this year? Well, this has been a really destabilizing, disorientating week because some of the events have been in person. Some of the events have been online. And it's often been hard to know in advance which one it was. The good news is that because many of the events have been online, it's been reaching a much wider audience than in previous years, the discussions. And I've had some amazing Zoom calls with people all over the world. The other bit of good news, of course, is that New York isn't quite so clogged with traffic, which it often has been in previous years. The bad news, though, is that it's taken away the intensity of the event. It's given a slightly downbeat tone. I've noticed there just isn't the same degree of energy in the air as normal. And of course, the other bit of bad news is that the pandemic has really set back the cause of human progress in terms of all the metrics around health and inclusion and gender violence, et cetera, et cetera, around the world. And the reality is that grappling with these challenges and trying to uphold the SDGs now is harder than it was, say, two years ago in terms of where we're starting. There's much more awareness. In some quarters, there's much more willingness to deal with these challenges. But the scale of the problem is daunting, to put it mildly. I would love to hear a little bit more about like the kinds of conversations that you were like, what's the trend on the topics that people are willing, are like talking about inside events, particularly in your world. But I really hope, you know, like I spent years and years trying to make, try to make it the hot ticket, the place to be, UNGA, even UNGA as an acronym started to being like sexy thing. And I really hope that it doesn't lose that energy and that, you know, while allowing more people 
um, to have access to it, we don't lose that energy. So what are the things that you have heard, the most recurrent themes, the mode and the tone that you have experienced in the events that you have participated yourself? Well, we came out this morning with our Moral Money newsletter on Friday with a kind of series of five big takeaways that we had. And they one of them is the fact that you are seeing the U.S. came out and doubled its commitment to um, international climate transition support, development support. You saw China coming out and saying that it would halt overseas funding for coal power plants. That's kind of progress, but one of the big questions is whether that's really enough to generate meaningful breakthroughs at the COP26 meetings in Glasgow. There's concern that the US position is so caught up with the infrastructure bill and the endless discussions that it won't be able to pledge much in Glasgow And if the U.S. can't pledge much, then what can the other countries do? So that's one concern. Another big concern is that rising fuel prices in Europe right now is creating the chance of a public backlash against renewable energy, much as we saw in the Gilets Jaunes protests in Paris when you had the backlash against the fuel tax hikes. And there is a concern that if governments don't get clever about how to coordinate the measures they need to do to create renewable energy and battle climate change, that we'll see more social protests. Third key theme is that business is moving pretty fast, surprisingly fast in many areas to embrace not just climate change initiatives, but global goals. We are seeing increased interest in ESG. That's all good. Ironically, though, the very fact that business is moving is creating a danger that governments will try and pass a buck to business and put too much emphasis on private sector action without having the necessary coordination by the public sector as well. And last but not least, billionaires, philanthropists are back in the spotlight. For years, we've had Bill Gates, we've had Michael Bloomberg doing really quite dramatic things. This year, we had Jeff Bezos of Amazon coming in with his 10 billion Earth Fund and saying on Monday that he was going to give a billion of that to conservation efforts around the world. A billion doesn't buy you a lot these days, sadly, but it can be catalytic. And so that's in many ways one of the things that people are hoping that will help to galvanise more of the energy that you're talking about, Claudia, that we've always hoped to try and see around the younger week. Yes, absolutely. Edie? So thank you, Gillian. So stay close. We've got you for another few minutes. We always want to get out into the field and out of the global north every episode if we can. So today we've invited a colleague from Argentina, Ivan Weissman. He was my editor back in Bloomberg TV days, and he's the founder of El Mostrador Mercados in Chile and the founding partner of Red Acción in Argentina. So Ivan, welcome. I'm going to play you another clip. This is back to Vishal uh, Gujidar of the Gates Foundation on the innovative ways that people, especially women, are stepping up to get through this crisis. I think cash transfers are another one. I, I did not expect them to be scaled up so quickly in so many places. Pakistan's a great example in terms of the number of people who had both received the cash transfers and you know, 15 million of them didn't have bank accounts before and now do. 10 million of them women. You do that now, that's something that sets them up for the future as well. It's something that's going to last beyond the pandemic, which is great and can hopefully have huge knock-on effects. So I think that's another really good success story that we're seeing in multiple countries. So Ivan, you have a similar story to tell us from Argentina. A bit of context, just like the rest of the world, but I think a bit worse, Latin America was hit really hard because it doesn't have the resources as the developed world. And in Argentina, particularly because it was in the middle of a really profound, deep economic crisis, unfortunately one that every 10 years or so hits the country. And a new government that had just been voted in 
basically, I think three months after he had ta- it had taken office, the pandemic hit. And so the context was, was very hard, and, but the impact has been very dramatic. In Argentina, I know for every dollar that a man earns, a woman earns 85 cents. And because there's a huge portion of the workforce here that is informal, and that informality, a lot of it is women, domestic work, it hit very hard. No, but out of crisis, some things uh, happened that are actually positive. And hopefully one of the things that happened in Argentina, and I think it happened in, in the rest of Latin America, is something that was happening already in the developed North is the empowerment. Sounds a bit cliche, but there's been a lot of social movements that have forced things to happen outside the traditional party politics. And politicians have been at first surprised, the more clever ones have taken in this and adopted. One of this is the, the women's movement. In Argentina, right before COVID happened, there'd been a, a huge movement, a uh, women's movement pro-abortion for it to be safe, free, and, and the government actually took it upon itself and, and it approved it or forced the approval in Congress. And also for the first time, the budget, the last year's budget had a, a, a very specific resources allocated for gender equality. And there were a couple of really interesting things that are here to stay and are quite innovative. One of them was that women that stayed at home taking care of kids were going to be recognized and there was going to be economic value given to that. And they were going to be recognized as having worked all those years. And that's going to be recognized when it comes down to figuring out what sort of pension they get once they retire. Well, that was huge. The other thing that was interesting is that while all the government aid that was given the, what, it could, what the government could do because it didn't have that much money, it included specifically maids, which most of them are informal, though there's been a huge push to, to formalize the social contract. There was also uh, money given to uh, caretakers, or women that stay at home to take care of family members, children or no, relatives, which in Argentina, I think in most of the third world, that sort of jobs, that sort of work is done majority by, by women. Legislation was passed that all uh, companies, either the, whether they trade in the public, in, a, in the stock exchange, or they are limited partnerships after a certain level, they have to have uh, 50-50 women on the boards. And also political representation, not the elections that just happened, but the ones two years ago, the 2019 data was pre-COVID, but that was there was, uh, there was legislation implemented that there has to be parity on the, I don't want to, it's too technical, but basically it increases women's part- uh, representation and it has to be gender equality. And there's been a huge support of it. I mean, there hasn't really been any pushback, even the more conservative parts of society, but no, there's been huge support. And there's a, a full awareness that because women are such a huge part of the workforce for Argentina to move forward, to reduce poverty, to advance as it can towards the, the global United Nations development program to 2030. If it doesn't do things to include and raise women and their role in the economy, they're never going to get there. And so they've been, this government, if, if you can say some of the positives out of this crisis, is that agenda, which might have been in the fringes of the political discourse pre-COVID, it's pretty much in the heart of it, and it has widespread support. That's quite encouraging and pretty much contrary to what you would think, that because of COVID, 
national priorities would actually take the urgency and forgetting about like frameworks, global frameworks like the SDGs, you would think government's actually falling back. It's encouraging to see that uh, a lot of a lot of work has been done in areas like gender. Gillian, you were talking about the business avengers and philanthropies taking over. And in a way, it's quite encouraging. But at the same time, we have to manage the expectations of people that companies and CEOs can solve global issues. And how is that coming along? There's more and more adventures. I was invited to the fashion adventures and this one adventures. And everybody wants to be an adventure. But in reality, it's the job of governments to really tackle this. Thing. That's such a great question, Claudia. And we've gone through this kind of historical evolution where if you dial back 10 years ago, even five years ago, most of business thought that these issues were really for government to solve, not business, which very much stemmed from Milton Friedman's ideas that laid the foundations for American-style capitalism and Western-style capitalism since the 1970s, which was that companies were just there to make money for shareholders and everything else tricky could be outsourced to the government. Of course, Milton Friedman developed those ideas in an era, the 1970s, when people thought that the government was credible and competent and could do stuff, and where there wasn't radical transparency among society watching what companies were actually doing. Of course, we have very different um, days these days where people don't trust governments to get stuff done. And consumers and employees and customers and investors can watch companies and see if they're living up to what they want their social standards to be. Anyway, so companies thought it was really a business of government. And then, of course, the rise of the ESG movement changed everything significantly. And so in the last two or three years, companies have really been stepping up to try and support this idea of stakeholderism whereby you're seeing an absolutely huge array of companies trying to do things to show their commitment to sustainability and stakeholderism. In fact, it's a very brave CEO these days who dares to say that I don't care about this stuff. There are really two big problems with this, though. One is that there's the danger of greenwashing, wokewashing, SDG washing, unger washing, whatever you want. It's very hard to track a lot of this and to work out whether it means what companies say that they're doing, what it means what it says on the tin. The other danger is that governments may step back and say, you know what, we don't think we need to actually champion um, this so much anymore. We can leave it to the private sector. That's dangerous. One of the best comments I heard this week was from the CEO at dinner who said, we don't really need governments to lead right now as we used to on things like climate change, but we do need them to follow and to coordinate and to ensure we have the framework for a joined up intelligent response. Because you definitely need the private sector involved and the NGO world. You basically need a three-legged stool, public, private and NGO, all working together. But you, what you really need is coordination. And just to come back to the issue about the fuel price rises in Europe, this shows exactly why you need coordination. Because one reason why gas prices are rising is because companies in the energy sector are getting increasingly scared of financing gas production because of this growing desire to combat climate change. Governments are encouraging renewables, but no one's really thought about what happens if the renewable capacity isn't high enough to plug the gap if you suddenly have gas generation falling off. So that's where you need coordination, governments to follow, not just lead, as it were. Thank you, Gillian. I see Anthony's joined us. Anthony Kefalos is the vice chair of the Democracy and Culture Foundation and the host of next week's Athens Forum, where you're rolling out a new charter for business, putting equity at the center of the goal. So a really good follow on from what Jillian was talking about. 
Give us a preview about what you're going to be calling for. We came to the idea that uh, really at the bottom of everything, it is the question of inequality. Inequality was a major problem after the first, uh, in the interwar period. It actually had started with the first great wave of globalization. And um, the basic issue that destroyed uh, the world in, uh, in, in, in between the two world wars um, was the, the issue of inequality, economic inequality, which became social inequality as well. Now, it is not by coincidence that following the First World War and for a period of about 30 years, the using the tools of the Keynesian revolution, which to our mind uh, was primarily a political revolution and not an economic revolution only, we had uh, capitalism with a human face and inequality went down to a very large extent. Now, in the period following the advent of stagflation, which was a rather unfortunate event that happened for political reasons and uh, which really was initiated by the great unilateral transfer of resources that, it incurred, that it occurred during the first, the two oil crises, the tools of the welfare state, which had been used to a very large extent to reduce inequality and uh, to ensure that the benefits of welfare were more equally shared than in the past. They were downgraded, and they were downgraded because at the same time, certain inefficiencies of the state were magnified. We got the revolution of get out of the state. The state is the problem, not uh, the solution. And now we've ended up with a situation in which no matter which way you look at it, the capitalism as a system works exclusively on the basis of short-term. The result is that you don't create value, you extract value. So for us, uh, the main problem is to reduce inequality. And the corollary to this is that if you don't reduce inequality, then you will not be able to operate uh, in a system that you could call liberal capitalism. You can easily go into a system where you have uh, authoritarian capitalism, which is what China is trying to do, especially now with the new initiatives that uh, Xi Jinping is, uh, is initiating. But this is a very clear to our mind that you cannot have uh, what we call casino capitalism together with democracy. The two cannot coexist. Consequently, what we're saying is that there are three things. First, uh, that companies must commit to foregoing short-term profits. To put it in a different way and for a rational way, no more quarterly earnings. Yearly earnings, one example. Number two, integrate uh, financial and non-financial reporting, absolutely, to deal with washing, green washing, blue washing, and whatever else. Number two, whatever you do, the end result uh, must be to reduce inequality. It is not enough to talk about reducing the abstract input. It is not about uh, enough to say that we're talking about climate change. This is... a uh, a general sort of a position which hides you. The end must be to reduce inequality. No matter what you do, no matter what projects you undertake in terms of corporate social responsibility or college, whatever you want, there must be an end result in terms of reducing inequality. And a final point that distinguishes this charter from the others is that company companies must commit to integrate in their organization the intergenerational dialogue. We are creating a huge gap between the generations. It's a dangerous gap, 
And unless this is done at the level of the companies as well, we're going to end up with generations which are looking at us and just simply rejecting everything that we're doing. I like to see those companies moving forward, companies that are like putting their money where their mouth is, coming to real reporting and else, Gillian, you have on the Financial Times launched recently a campaign, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about that and any final thoughts uh, on today's podcast. Well, I think I pick up and echo many of the points that Anthony just made, which is that I think businesses today recognize that they live in a world where, frankly, they face growing dangers if they carry on with business as usual, whether it's an environmental backlash, climate change damaging them, whether it's a social backlash and pitchforks at the gate, to put it crudely, the world has become unsustainable in many ways. I think they also recognize that they need to widen the lens beyond just this narrow focus on shareholders to stakeholders because the world's becoming, you know, so unstable. And the Financial Times is always engaged in talking to our readers about what it thinks and the key issues of the day are. And the type of messages we're getting from the readers these days is very different. So we've recently written a series of letters to our readers. It's a campaign, a new agenda setting set of messages, trying to lay out the fact that we live in a world where stakeholders, not just shareholders, matter, where we need to take a holistic view, we need to have lateral vision. And we need to recognise that the recent past is not necessarily a guide to the future. And if there's anything that's shown us how much the world is changing, it has been the pandemic that shows us simultaneously we're very closely connected together as a single global system where we're all constantly exposed to each other to a point where we can't just ignore the plight of people on the other side of the world or ignore issues like inequality that Anthony's talked about. And yet the reality is that most of the time we have no idea what's happening on the other side of the world and very little empathy for others. So that empathy gap, that knowledge gap, urgently needs to be plugged in a world where contagion is an ever-present risk. And that's what we're trying to do at the Financial Times. It's what you're trying to do with your Global Goalscast podcast as well. Thank you, Jillian. Really appreciate you joining us as always. So Ivan, I'm going to get you to respond to Jillian's comment. And one other question, COVID has clearly affected the Global South more than the Global North, although of course it's affected marginalized communities in the Global North as well. And it's not just Africa. And I'd love to hear some anecdotes from Latin America and some stories that might help us understand what's going on. Yeah. First, I, I want to comment what, follow on on what Anthony and Jillian said. It's really interesting because I, as, as you said at the beginning, I, I do a lot of work in Chile. I, I run a newsletter. I'm on the board of a media group that I was part of. And Chile was the poster child of success of liberal capitalism over the last 30 years. And if you look at all the macro numbers, that was absolutely the truth. And even in, in the, the average life of the people, you went from having 45% poverty to having less than 10% from being one of the poorest countries in Latin America to being the richest on per capita. But the average were hiding, hiding things. And that was some of the things that Anthony talked about, which was that this growth, you know, and this, all these macro numbers were, were hiding that there was a minority of people that did not feel that they were you know, benefited by this globalism, you no know, liberal reforms and technology innovations. And that came to a, to a burst, to an explosion in 2019 called the Estallido, led by students. And I think that companies, Chile has the most, after Brazil, I think it has the most companies in Latin America that are listed on the New York Stock Exchange. 
It's the financial center of Latin America after Sao Paulo. And I think that message that you cannot have, no, I would say capitalism as it was and democracy as it was be a legitimate example, legitimate system. And there's a huge rethinking and soul searching and companies that are used to think our job is to provide jobs and pay taxes and that helps growth. They realize that's not enough to be a legitimate part of the society where you operate. You need to think about equality. You need to think about inclusion. You need to think about gender issues. You need to think about the environment. That is happening slowly, but it's happening that the new constitution is including all, the, all, all that thinking. So that on that. On your question, Edie, uh, again, there are some positives if you want to look uh, know about the COVID thing. And I give the example in Argentina, but I understand this happened in a lot of countries in Latin America. Argentina was a country that is very much, much cash orientated. About 50% of the population did not, even if they had one, they did not use a bank account. One of the reasons was because a huge part of the workforce, especially the middle and lower type of jobs are an in the, the informal economy and also for tax purposes. People just did not want to pay taxes and small businesses in the provinces and the less urban areas, it was all cash. Well, COVID made that really difficult and the government was behind the curve and the regular banks were behind the curve, but who stepped up? A couple of fintechs that are, were growing slowly but surely, and they had expressed, I'll just mention two of them that are global. Mercado Pago is the uh, digital wallet of Mercado Libre, which is the Amazon of Latin America. It's an Argentine company and it's the biggest company, Latin company listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And it went from, you know, in a year, it's been it's gone from about $20 billion to being worth $90 billion mostly because the boom in e-commerce and the boom of their digital wallet. And there's another company that is growing fast that he has money from Goldman Sachs, from George Soros, from big American investors called Walla with a U. And it started in Argentina. It's also a digital platform for payments and it's expanded to Mexico and Colombia. Basically all the young people and a lot of the small businesses in the poor neighborhoods, that was the only way that they could do transactions during the hardest part of the, of the confinement of the lockdown. And a lot of small businesses know where the only way they could survive was with the implementation of this technology. So there's been a huge shift to, to, to this sort of, and the companies have boomed. They've created good paying jobs, they created profits and they're helping financial inclusion, which is one of the goals of the, you know, United Nations 2030. So that's a positive story that's come out. Ivan, you're like an optimist. We like actually getting people that see life like through those lenses. Well done. Anthony, do you want to react? I'd just like to make one point. I think that first of all, that this business about stakeholders is really like trying to hide things. What does it mean, stakeholders? Shakeholders, we didn't like the word shareholders because we thought that it is too narrow. Then we said stakeholders. And then who is the stakeholder? It's about everybody. But companies don't really. Get, make the profits about everybody. Companies say, yes, well, stakeholders, it's our suppliers, it is the people who work with us, it is even the consumers who receive our, uh, our goods. Well, for me, it's another way of washing. It's stakeholder washing. You're just hiding what is really. The, the point is that the shareholders are getting the money. Then the, my, the main profits come from where? They come from the investments of the investment funds. 
Uh, investment funds don't have stakeholders. The stakeholders of the investment funds are the investors. It is not by coincidence that uh, you've had this huge increase in inequality and the pandemics, uh, and I call pandemics not only COVID, I call pandemics the climate change, I call pandemics migration, because these are issues that concern the whole of the Zimus, being the whole of society. I'm using the Greek word of Zimus as society. It's pandemics. It's a pandemic for everything. The climate change is a pandemic. Migration is a pandemic. Yeah, what seems to be a trend of what all of you have said is that there is this path, this journey, this trend that we're seeing on actually stakeholderism, what Gillian called it, and it's less shareholders and more stakeholders, and we hope that is the case. I want to give Ivan and Anthony just a minute more each to, to respond to anything that they've in particular heard from the discussion or anything they want to bring to close with? I think that the, there was one issue that was festering or that was hanging around before COVID that now has pretty much at the forefront and there's a consensus that, that crosses the political divide that is shaping a lot of the discussion now, which is about that for capitalism and democracy or liberal democracies as we understand them to be to stay as a legitimate option as the way that we govern as a legitimate system. It needs to reform itself and people are demanding that. And I think that at least in the global South or the part of the global South that is Latin America, that is pretty much at the forefront of the discussion. The immediate discussion is how we get out of COVID. How do we help those that were most affected? But the second one is know both of the private sector and politically that we need to make changes a lot faster than we thought for democracy and capitalism to be a viable alternative. Otherwise, you leave room to populism, either from the right or to the, or from the left. Thank you. All right, Anthony, what about you? Any closing thoughts? Yes, I would say that uh, we must be careful um, not um, to overdo um, the, the lack of attention we pay to our own countries and institutions. Look, there's no way in which you're going to get China to adopt liberal capitalism or liberal democracy. And there are a lot of countries which are sliding down the opposite way as far as democracy is concerned. What I'm concerned with is we're paying too much attention. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we're paying too much attention to what is happening outside our borders, outside the countries that are the bastions of liberal democracy. Although I don't like the two words going together. Democracy is liberal by itself. I would say liberal capitalism and democracy and less attention to the dangers that lurk within our own walls. And what has happened in the United States, what uh, for a moment tended to happen to, to, to the United Kingdom, what is happening in Hungary, in Poland, should concern us as much uh, as we may be concerned about what happens in Myanmar or in Latin America. Thank you very much. I think we've reached the end of our, our allotted 45 minutes, but thank you very much to our guests, to Jillian, to Ivan, to Anthony for joining us. Thank you to those in the background as well, helping make this happen to Curtis, to Michelle, to Mike. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining. Thank you so much, everybody, and happy UNGA week. <laughs>